If you have a Bible, would you turn to the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis? We're going to look at the death of Abraham. I thought I could get more out of uh, this chapter, but uh, I kind of got hamstrung. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever been hamstrung, but especially by the Word of God, I hope it hamstrings a lot of us a lot of the times. It, uh, it's really good at that. But um, we come to this 25th chapter. It's actually the end of Abraham's life. Uh, and so um, all th- good things must come to an end. Amen. Life is short and then you die. And um, so b- get ready. Right? I, I think I have it in the book of Ecclesiastes. I always do that at funerals. I have written right up, up the top of the margin in, on, on that uh, page in my Bible that says, life is short, enjoy it, eternity is long, prepare for it. And um, there's just so much truth to that. And so, um, but before Abraham dies, he, uh, he continues to prolificate and um, have uh, children well into his 150s. And so, uh, the old rascal. Uh, But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for life and even long life, Lord. I I know uh, just seeing a lot of people struggle as they get older, Lord. Um, I don't know how old I I would like to be, but I know that you have my days numbered. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us all a heart of wisdom as we consider our own lives, Lord, and whether it's a very brief time that we have left in this world or, or a long agonizing time we have left in this world, I pray that you would be with us. And even today, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts, Lord, and that we would, um, Lord, seek wisdom from our God, Lord, knowing that there is an appointment that none of us are going to miss. And so... Uh, we, we love you. We thank you for the beautiful, powerful hope that you've given us, Lord. We have an awesome future, whether here or we know for sure with you, Lord, and, um, and you control it all. You are truly our sovereign God who holds our breath in your hand. And I pray today that we would, uh, that we would take heed, Lord, that we would take heed to our, our hearts and uh, the things that are in front of us, Lord. Uh, the people that are in front of us and how you've called us to this, uh, this life of being uh, salt and light and help us to run our race well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, right off the bat here in verse one of chapter 25, it says, and Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah and she bore him Zimram Jokshan Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurom and Letshuim and Lumimim, and the sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephur and Hanak and Abida and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. So here, Abraham is... Uh, Takes another wife. He ain't done yet. Right? And, and the Lord, it seems, had to revitalize him because even the New Testament talks about the deadness of Abraham to be able to produce children. But as he, as when the Lord regenerated him to produce Isaac, it's as it 
it stuck. He's, he, stayed, he stayed that way, uh, able to produce more. Well, God was fulfilling his prophecy, right? The sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven would be the descendants of this man. And sure enough, he, he did it. It was fulfilling that prophecy there in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, where it says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be a father of many nations. So here's the sons of Keturah. There's, um, there's six sons of Keturah, there's seven grandsons mentioned, and there's three great-grandsons named. Uh, some are familiar, right? Midian, you remember the Midianites? That's who Gideon, when the Lord called Gideon, that great man of valor, to go fight, he fought the Midianites. They were, they were brothers to the Israelites. Just like so many people, so many of those people over there are Shemitic people and, and descendants of Shem, and yet they've... They've, um, they've kind of become enemies. Sheba and Dedan, we see them mentioned in, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Um, many believe that's the Arabian people. And so um, he takes this wife, Keturah, and he has, has some more kids. And uh, the legacy lives on. Abraham, what a legacy, Right? You think about this man's life, and you, you go to Abu Dhabi, there in the United Arab Emirates, and the, the Abrahamic house, right? It has a big cathedral for each religion, the Jewish religion, and the, the Muslim religion, and the Christian religion. It's, uh, it's powerful. Then the, the accords they had made here a few years back during the Trump administration called the Abraham Accords. It's going to affect the whole world. Abraham has affected the whole world, this man. And, uh, and God has called us to be uh, people of faith. It was because of his faith. It was because his, his faith in the one true God. Now, I believe that many religions are confused. But Abraham wasn't. Only his descendants. Can I ask you, are you confused today? <laughs> about religion, about faith, about who God is, about who Christ is, about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life? Are you, the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. Are you confused about these things? I'm, I'm shocked sometimes at people that have been in church 20, 30, 40 years and how confused they are about the person of Christ, about salvation, about uh, reconciliation, about this life that God's called us all to. There is no excuse to be ignorant, none. And um, believe me, I'm, I'm quite the ignoramus myself, but, but when, it, when you come to Jesus and you're born again and you begin to grow spiritually, you start to know these things. You hunger and thirst for, for rightness and God will lead you. And that was the heart of this person, Abraham, who we have called um, our father, our father of faith. Warren Wiersbe says this about true faith. True faith is our obedient response to the word of God. God speaks, we hear him and believe, and we do what he tells us to do. Pretty simple. But so many people, they don't really want to hear God. They want what God has to offer. So many people that I know, they want God's blessing, right? They want God's forgiveness. They want God's fire insurance, right? 
I hope I didn't confuse anybody with that one. Right? God's fire insurance is keeping you out of hell. Right? And some people, that's the only reason they want Jesus is just to keep me out of hell. Let me do what I want, but keep me out of hell. Isn't that an old Beatles song? I don't know. I know there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. I think that's a John Lennon doctrine. But... Um, But that's true obedience. And God, through this, this person of Abraham, gives us this Jewish nation that we see all blasted all over the world, right? There's either solidarity or angst towards the nation of Israel right now. All around the world. How is that possible? Because God is displaying himself through this people group. For some reason, he chose them. He chose them to be a light unto the nations, Isaiah tells us, right? Jesus said to the woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship for... Let me try that again. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, God chose this person, Abraham, to start up this relationship, makes a covenant with him that someday down through the future of humanity, he was going to produce a savior that would come and save you and me. And that's what we're going to celebrate here in this season, right? We celebrate the coming, the, the first advent of God's salvation for you and me. And he does it through this guy. Do you know what you worship? Do you know who you worship? Do you know why you worship him? Those are questions that you should just know the answer to. Yes, I know why I worship him. Because he came and did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And that he conquered my greatest fear in overcoming death. And he promises me an eternity of joy and peace. That is a good deal. And so he's, he's working through these people. He's, he says, salvation is of the Jews. He's telling this to a Samaritan, right? That was a kind of a half-breed Jew. The Jews looked down on him, on, on these, these half-breed Jews. Because they placed their ethnicity above other, uh, well, let's just face it. They just think they're better than everybody else. Because they're God's chosen people. In a sense, that's true. Because even though they have a desperately wicked heart like you and I have, God has his hand on those people. Why? Because he keeps his promises. That's all I can say. God is a promise keeper. He doesn't go back on his word. His word doesn't change. Unlike popular belief, especially in this part of the country. God doesn't change his mind. Now, God will withdraw judgment when judgment is deserved. If somebody will humble themselves, maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to humble yourself before the Lord and let him lift you up. But Romans talks to us about this, uh, this Jewish thing, this Israelite thing in, in, 
in chapter 9, Paul writes in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, countrymen, the Israelites, to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain, listen to this, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the fresh flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed God. Amen. He said all these things came from this people group. That's why this replacement theology thing that's going around, actually a lot of Calvary chapels, which I am a descendant of Calvary Chapel, um, a lot of the Calvary chapels have, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, some Calvary chapels have embraced replacement theology. Replacement theology, who knows what, if you don't know what it is, that's fine, but some of you know what it is, some of you don't. Replacement theology is that the church is going to replace Israel, right? That the church, spiritually speaking, is going to come along and replace Israel. And these are God's chosen people now, the church. I don't think that's right. It, it, it doesn't seem to be. God, God promises Israel, and you read the book of Romans, and, and Paul talks about it. His promises are to Israel. Now, if, listen, if May 14th, 1948 did not happen, then I would maybe think, well, I don't know, you guys might have a point there. But May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation in a day. Okay? This is a miracle. Right? A people group does not cease to exist for 2,500 years and then all of a sudden just be reborn. But Israel did. And obviously, it's obvious that God's hand is on their lives. You look at Jerusalem compared to Gaza City right now. You can actually still drive in Jerusalem. Gaza City, you have to hike. I don't even know if you could ride a horse through there. It's so... It's just rubble, unbelievable. And so this, this Abraham, this is, a, this is a, an awesome character. He, he leaves a legacy maybe no, like no other human being in history. And you and I are still reading it today. And um, so everything that God has given you and I has come through Abraham. And notice in verses 5 and 6, it was passed to his son, Isaac. And it says, verse 5, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham and, had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, so the to the country of the east. So he sent them to the east, and actually to the east, if you look at it, it's called, up to, in Mesopotamia there, it's called the, the cradle of civilization, or the, the fertile crescent, that country between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, it's, it's fascinating country, I mean, those two rivers are obviously the lifeblood that runs down into the Persian Gulf, and um, and God sent these men, all these, all these extra sons, um, including probably some of the descendants of Ishmael, all went to the east. But he gave everything, right? He, 
he gave everything to his son, Isaac. And this is such a beautiful picture of Jesus, you guys. Because God gives everything to Jesus. And when you and I are connected to Jesus, when you're a born-again Christian and you're in the body of Christ, we get it all. Right? We get it all. And I don't know if you're really struggling to get it all here in this world. I wouldn't really worry about that if I was you. I'd be concerned, actually, if that's your pursuit, right? Because the Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll give us everything we need. He'll even give us sometimes some of the stuff we want just to prove to us that we don't really need it. You ever had that happen? Get that new outfit and thinking, you know, but you get about five or six payments in, you're going, man, this is a drag. <laughs> Doesn't even smell new anymore. It costs me so much money. But he gave gifts to his sons, right? Isaac is the preeminent one, right? He is that picture of Christ Jesus. And yet, because Abraham is good, he gives good gifts. God is good. God wants to give you gifts. Have you asked him for any lately? When you read through the gifts uh, of the Spirit there in the New Testament and the, and the different epistles to the 1 Corinthians and the, the Ephesians, have you, God's got gifts for us. God's, God's got some of you in a teaching position, maybe in the future. Teaching the word of God, I mean, right? God's, God's got some of you as a, as a, a nurturer or a, a, a nurse or a, or a missionary or going out and ministering to people. God gives you gifts. He puts this love in our heart for people that's, it's not natural. It's not a natural love. It's a supernatural. And, and Abraham was, was a good father. He gave gifts even to these boys as he sent them away. And so Isaac is a picture of the preeminent Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. What does preeminence mean? That's just a big, fancy word that I don't totally understand. It means to be the chief or the first. Jesus is numero uno, right? Jesus is number one. Years ago, I rodeoed with a guy, and he had that written on his rigging bag. Now, I hung out with him quite a bit, and it wasn't a true statement for him personally. I think it might be now, but back then it wasn't for any of us, and it said, Jesus first. Why? Because we get in the way. We get in the way of that, that preeminent position that the Lord desires in your life and in my life. Is he preeminent in your life? Jesus, that first thing, should be first thing and last thing. I wish I was guilty of it. The first thing on my lips in the morning and the last thing on my lips at night is this name Jesus. Why? Because there's power in it. There's power in the name of Jesus. I do well when I wake up and say, Lord Jesus, help me today. I start by seeking him. I give him that place of preeminence. Listen, this, this nation of Israel, it's, it's, it's fascinating because 
it too has a preeminence in the language, in the area of language. When, if you are standing in Jerusalem and you look north, right, most everything to the west in, in their languages, clear over here and in South America and North America, their language reads left to right. When you look right or look to the east, all of the, most of their languages are right to left. It all points to who? Israel. It all points to this. Some says that Israel means prince with God. It all points to this. The, even the languages. And we got questions about whether we should give our life to Jesus or not. Going through the book of Daniel, I love it because it's, it's so powerful when Daniel stands before Belshazzar there in chapter 6 and, and tells him, listen, dude, the God who holds your very breath in his hand, right? And that breath comes and goes really fast. That's who you're going to be accountable to. In fact, tonight... It's, you're going to take your last one. God's going to require your last breath tonight. I don't know about you, but that should really make your heart go pitter-patter, right? That the God who holds our breath in, in his hand desires to have the preeminence in your life and mine. Are we simply willing to give it to him? Because he gives us this free will that I think sometimes is a curse. God, why did I do that? What? You did that because you wanted to do that, right? And so, uh, interesting stuff. The, the whole language thing just, just fascinated me. Verse 7 says, this is the sum of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah, his wife, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt in Beer Laharoi. So he tells us 175 years, tells us how old Abraham is. He's been walking with God, right, for 100 years. God called him, right, when he was 75 years old. God called him to walk with him. When did God call you? Years ago, I remember hearing some evangelistic statistics, right? That most people, a, a, a huge majority of born-again believers come to Christ before the age of 25 to 30. They come to Christ before then. And then I see people who are coming to Christ when they're 70 and 80. I'm going, wow, you guys are... Uh, Different statistic, right? It's just not common. And it's probably because 
uh, even in my generation, when I was younger, in my, in my preteen and teen years, I remember hearing about crusades. I remember hearing about Christ, right? So often today, you, you'll encounter young people, they've never heard the gospel. Just like, how can you live in this world? And I think that because the media is so powerful, they only get directed to what they get drawn into. That's what all they're exposed to. It has so much power over them, they're just drawn into it. Now, people say the internet's evil, those things are evil, but there's always evil schemes behind them, right? It's almost like we're, we're morphing into what we can do as humans in the flesh into almost what machines can do with the computerized stuff that's almost, uh, should I say, spiritual? A spiritual darkness that... Uh, that is bizarre. It is just bizarre what, how, we're, how we're headed. But here's this man. He didn't really start his race till he was 75 years old. Now, the Bible tells us that God has shortened the lifespan of man. People don't live that long. Uh, I don't know when's the last time somebody's lived 175 years. It's been a while, Right? But, but Psalm 90 tells us that God shortens the years of man. Aren't you glad? I am so glad, right? I remember in my 40s thinking, man, this life, when I, when I heard Billy Graham, he just, he laid it out for me just so picture perfect. He was, Billy was in his 70s, his late 70s at the time. He was doing a Larry uh, King interview. And he tells Larry King, he says, Larry, and they, well, Larry asked him, says, so, Mr. Graham, have you ever sinned? You know, and Billy, he goes, well, uh, I would argue with Paul that I'm the chief of sinners. He says, Larry, I am a prisoner in this body. Right? I am a prisoner. I have thoughts I shouldn't have. I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. I am sinful. I'm a prisoner in this body. And so it is with you and I. Praise God, it gets old and dies. Uh, that's a good thing. And, and the Bible talks about it. You know, Psalm 90, I just mentioned it. In verse 10, it says, And the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. In another psalm that says, man at his very best is but a vapor. Whew. There you went. Oh, who was that? I don't know. Sometimes I, I think we take ourselves too seriously. Right? We think we're significant. For some reason, we think we are significant. My brother always told us, he said, listen, this is how significant you are. Put your hand in a bucket of water and pull it out. There you go. There's your significance. And yet we are significant to God in a personal, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, uh, created in his image, and he loves us. And he paid an incredible price for us. But in the big picture, 
We are not even a speck on a speck. Not even. A grain of sand has got us beat. So, we're down to 70 years. And really, this race is not how you start. It's how you finish. Right? I don't know if you've ever run much. I, I ran a lot. I was never very good at it, but I ran a lot. Number one, because I wrestled. And I played football, so we had to run a lot of sprints. But then I was foolish, and my junior and senior year, I ran track in high school. I ran the 880. That's what they called it back then. Now they call it the 800 meters. It is the biggest gut race in track because it's a half-mile sprint. And I, I learned really quick, it's really not how you start. There's two things really important when you run that race. Your pace and your finish, or what we call your kick, right? Your pace and your finish. What kind of pace can you maintain, and how well are you going to finish? Because sometimes your pace, if your pace gets ahead of your kick, <laughs> then you have no kick. And our buddy Abraham, my, oh my, oh my, how did he finish? He finished well. He finished well, right? His, his life parallels that found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He did those things. He finished well. How are you doing? Maybe, have, you, have you hit your pace, right? Hitting your pace. I'm still trying to find, hit my pace because I know, I know this. And I, I told this as I tried to teach kids to run over the last 20 years or so. I would tell them this. You can do more than you think you can. Right? You and I can do more than we think we can. I, um, I tell people I, I'm just the way I grew up and stuff and kind of I'm stunned. I don't, I don't have a, a vast... Um, um, I don't have vast ability or capabilities. Uh, I feel like I'm very limited. Um, but I see people all the time who don't even try. And if God's given you this life, he's going to require how you run your race. He's going to require how well you do that. He wants an account. Did you pace yourself? Could you have done more? And did you? Because once you recognize it, then, right, that's a, that's a responsibility. We can't be accountable for what we don't know. But what we do know, God will hold us accountable for. Because death, death is not the worst thing that could happen. It was, definitely wasn't the worst thing that could ha happen to, to Abraham. But an eternal separation from God is. When I hear people all the time, when someone dies, oh, they're better off. They're not better off if they don't know Christ, right? They are not better off if they don't know Christ. And you say, that's so cruel. And, and no, you don't usually say that to when somebody, you know, I know. Your loved one just went to hell, right? How's that some Jesus love for you, right? You don't say that. You're sensitive about those things. And ultimately, we don't know, 
We don't know when someone can cry out in their heart to the Lord. But death is not the worst thing. Eternal separation from God is. Can I just encourage you today, folks, keep running. Maybe you've fallen. Maybe you've stumbled, right? If you've fallen or you're stumbled, get back up. Proverbs tells us the righteous fall seven times. Get back up. Keep running. Don't weaken. For crying out loud, where are you going to go? Where are you going to run to? Who are you going to run for? You can run for you. That's a dead-end street. But if you run for the Lord, the finish line is absolutely glorious. You might have to go back and find your pace. You might have to start a little bit slower. Because I tell you this, the finish line is a lot closer than you think. It's a lot closer than you think. Because in the words of that great old theologian, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. Right? It ain't over till it's over. Notice something here. It says in verse 8 that it says, Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. His old age was good. You know, the Bible says that this old, this old head of ours, you know, and a lot, lot of you are with me, this gray hair we're getting. The Bible says the hoary head is, it's, it's a crown, right? It's a, it's a crown of honor if it's, if it's found in the way of righteousness. As, you, as we get older, men, especially men, we should get smarter. And, 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 and realize that, yes, Lord, we need you. We need you more now than, than ever before. And he was, he was a righteous man. He was a righteous, the Bible, he was righteous, the Bible tells us, because he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed what God said. And so he died in this, in this good old age. One comic wrote, I'd rather be over the hill than under it. I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good analogy, right? Abraham died in peace. He died in peace. Can I ask you, if you died today, would it be in peace? Would your heart just be, or would there be some things, man, there's a few things I need to get right. Peace with God, peace with family, peace with your neighbors, coworkers, brothers, sisters in the Lord, brothers and sisters in your family, children, sons and daughters. How many family members I talk to all the time, they haven't talked to another family member in two or three years. That shouldn't be named among us as believers. We should at least be gracious enough because how merciful and gracious God has been to us, we should be able to reach out and to be at peace in case tonight we do take our last breath. I uh, worked with a fella. He had farmed for several years and and uh, he was on our board of the company I worked for. And then he came, he left the board and he came and he worked and was just a laborer with us. And him and I had uh, a day together and we had lunch. It's about this time of year. It was cold out. And so we was in the pickup having lunch and visiting. And he was a Lutheran guy that I had, uh, I, he'd grown up with my dad. He was a little bit older than my dad. And, 
And so we just got to visiting about stuff, and he was telling me about going through confirmation in the Lutheran church and told me his Bible verse, you know, that he had to memorize and present to the, to the priest, and we were visiting, and, and uh, it was just a, just a sweet time of fellowship with this guy. He loved Jesus, and, uh, and though he was kind of into the liturgy and, and uh, the, the whole Lutheran thing, but... The next morning, he, Wednesday morning, he shows up at work and we're in the break room and he walks in. Hey, Bob, how you doing? He walks over to the office and he gets through the door and falls against the wall and grabs his chest. And he looks at our water master and says, my, my heart. And he grabs him up, throws him in the truck. And he died on the way to the hospital. Never, never said another word. Never took never, another breath after he got him in the pickup. And... Uh, it, it, happened, it was so fast, and of a sudden, I, just, I was just kind of taken back by it. I was in my 30s at the time, and, and um, his wife asked me to say a few words at his funeral. And I went up to her afterwards, and I said, Judy, you know, when things happen of a sudden like this, many times the Lord will give you, you know, just some little, you know, bright lights somewhere that maybe something was coming. Did anything like that happen? And she kind of got a smile on her face, and she said, actually, it did. She said, Bob was, uh, he had been at odds with a couple of our neighbors. They farmed out on the West End, and you've got to know the people on the West End of the Magic Valley there. The little bit inbred. <laughs> and, and they're a little rough. They're, they're rough people. And, uh, you know, he had been sideways with these guys for a long time. He says, but when we had our farm sale, the two that he had had the biggest problem with, they came up and they shook hands and they talked and they laughed and they joked. And she said, that was just, it just really put both of our hearts at ease. And we were just at peace when we left because they had sold the farm and moved into town. And Bob had actually told me on, on Tuesday, he said, you know, he said, I've got everything lined out. He said, if anything would happen, Judy's fine. She's fine. Next day, boom, life's over. Just that quick. And it was just a lesson for me, man, don't, don't let the sun go down if you got some business to take care of, right? If you need to talk to somebody, and just a handshake, just a handshake sometimes. Maybe you might need to shake somebody's hand before you leave here today. I don't know. But it, many times it just puts a salve on a wound that we so often either inflict on each other or we're so sensitive that we allow ourselves to be damaged and, and suspicious and all those things, and the Lord would just have us be at peace. Romans chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 5. And I'm going to read all of this because it's, it's just so apropos about having peace in our hearts. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul tells us in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... Also, we have access by faith into his tribulations, knowing that tribulations, per, tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by this Holy Spirit who has, he has given to us. That's how I want to die. I just want to die in peace. I want to die, I know I have the peace of God in my heart, but I want to die at peace with my brothers and sisters, with, even with my enemies. The Bible says, you know, that when a man's ways please the, 
please the Lord, it causes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So then who do we look at? We look at our own lives. That's really the only, we're the only one that can do anything about this mess, right? This mess that you and I can create. Says he was gathered to his people. This is interesting. I love this phrase because I've heard it a lot, but this is the first place it's mentioned in the Bible, that Abraham was gathered to his people. Now, that doesn't just mean he was gathered in the graveyard with these people because actually the only person in the graveyard with him now is Sarah. They're at Machpelah. But it does not mean that uh, he was just in in a graveyard, but it does mean that... uh, He was in a place, it was a holding place. And um, James chapter 2, verse 26, it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And and that's true. The Old Testament word uh, for the realm of the dead was Sheol. It was the grave that actually all of the Old Testament saints, when they died, went into Sheol. Now, when Jesus comes along, and in Luke 19, or excuse me, Luke 16, he talks about Abraham. Abraham is the spokesman in Sheol, in the grave. He's the spokesman. You remember the rich man, there's a, two guys died. Jesus tells the story, two guys died. Rich man died, right? He, had, he fared sumptuously, and then there was this poor beggar that laid at his gate. The rich man never helped the guy, right? And then, and then Abraham says, listen, dude, you rich dude, you think you're, uh, you're bummed that you're in this place of torment, right? And here's Lazarus who didn't have anything. You could have given him something, but you didn't, right? Lazarus is comforted and the rich man is tormented. That there were two compartments to the grave. There was a comfort side and there was a torment side. And Abraham was the spokesman of the of the peace side. Remember, he tells that guy. That guy says, hey, that Lazarus, that dude, that servant, that, that beggar that was at my gate, send him and have him dip his finger in some water and wet my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham goes, you can't do that. There's this great gulf fixed between those who are comforted and those who are tormented. Abraham was gathered to a place of comfort. He was gathered to his people. I can't wait. It's going to be cool. I'm going to be gathered to my people. And oh, that group of people just keeps getting bigger as time goes on. All my friends, I'm, I'm, I'm going to all these funerals and all my friends are saying, well, this is the only time we see each other at our funeral. And I said, yeah, and then we're probably going to see each other at our own. Right? Because if I go first, you're not coming to mine. If you go first, I'm not coming to yours. Or maybe not. Maybe you should. No, that's the other way around. (laughs) But it's going to happen. And what a day that's going to be. A lot of people don't understand this. This whole end of life thing. Yet being gathered to your people is good. Because the Bible says those who are tormented, they're alone. They're in darkness, and there's a torment. There's a worm that doesn't die, and there's a fire that is not quenched. 
It's amazing to me how many people don't like to hear that. Well, if you're not right with God, I pro- well, if I wasn't right with God, I wouldn't want to hear it either. So daily, make sure you're right with God. Warren Wiersbe talks about this, right? The permanent home of the saved is heaven, and for the lost is hell. The permanent home for the saved is heaven. And so when Jesus comes along, so Abraham is the spokesman. Jesus comes along. He dies on the cross, right? And, and he goes into the grave for three days, and then he ascends. Now, Ephesians tells us something that scholars talk about this quite a bit. It's, it's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. It says, therefore, he says... When he ascended on high, that was Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So what it's saying is, is that that, that shield or that grave with the comfort side and the torment side, Jesus came, when he came, he came and he cleaned out the comfort side and he led captivity captive, right? He cleaned out the comfort side and took them with him. To be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. That's what Jesus did. Those who are in the place of torment or Gehenna or hell are still there. And they're awaiting the great white throne judgment. Well, that's not their final judgment. Their final judgment is the lake of fire because even hell is cast into the lake of fire. Pretty intense stuff. Okay, I'm just going to read it to you. It's here in Revelation, right? I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And it says, I saw the great right throne and him who sat on it. This is, this is yet in the future. For whose, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's the one you should be interested about. And the dead... who. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One day, you and I will be gathered to our people. Who are you going to be gathered to? You're going to be gathered to those in that place of torment or that lake of fire? Or you're going to be gathered to those who are comforted in the bosom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Wiersbe goes on and says, if God's people were your people in life, then you will be with them after death in the home that Jesus is now preparing. John chapter 14, right? Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come get you. And I'm going to take you to that place. 
right? I just get giddy when I think about that, right? If the Christian family is not your people, then you will be with the crowd that is going to hell. And it is described in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 and verse verse 27. You had better make the right choice, he concludes, because eternity is forever. Amen? This guy lived 175 years, right? 175 years. He died in a good old age. He died in faith. And what is cool, and I'm going to close with this in verse 9. Verse 9 suggests, right, there where it says, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre. Ishmael and Isaac come together here. You know, death reconciles. Many times when you go to a funeral, it could be of a close loved one or relative and, and, um, and you see people there maybe that you've been sideways with. Death has a, some way of just kind of squashing whatever you're watered up about, right? It should because the death of Jesus has reconciled us, amen? It's almost like these two, the death and burial of Abraham reconciled Ishmael and Isaac for a time, didn't stay that way. But isn't life is kind of cyclical? It's you have trouble and then you have peace. And then you have trouble and then you have peace. And then you have trouble. It's kind of like a, a picture of the promised land, right? When the when the children of Israel went into the promised land, what they had? They had conflict with the with the giants and the and the people, and they had victory. They had conflict and they had victory. They had conflict and they had victory. That's this life that you and I live, this Christian life. That's the Christian life. Conflict and victory. If you're not having victory, then maybe you need to draw closer to the Lord. Because we as believers are fighting from a place of victory. I don't have to fight for the victory. I've already won. Right? I've already won. You've already won. If you're in Jesus, and last, last scripture, promise, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, from now on, We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you guys know this one, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Just as you have come to Jesus and you're right with God, now God's given us this ministry. He pours that into your heart so that you can reconcile with anyone. Really? Yes, you can. It's the ministry that God has given us by his Holy Spirit. The ministry of reconciliation, verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. And that's what somebody reconciled, somebody who is reconciled is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because God has done that great exchange in their life. I don't know if God's done that great exchange in your life or not. You've exchanged your wickedness and your sin and your dark heart for the righteousness of Jesus. And you can do that with a word. A decision of your heart and a word of your mouth, you can do that and become reconciled. Not only to God, but to others. You know, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it is with us. If I've sinned against you, please come tell me that I can confess my sin to you and seek your forgiveness and that we can be reconciled. Because that's the ministry. That is, reconciliate, reconcile means to bring peace where there was once hostility. Restoration to favor is what it means. Maybe you need restored this morning. Last of all, Isaac lived at Bir Laharoi, that it's the well of the one who lives and sees. I don't know about you, that's where I want to live. With the, the well, picture of life of the one of the one who lives and sees me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for living, conquering death, offering life to us. We pray that you would draw us close to yourself in these days, Lord, in which we live and this ministry of reconciliation, Lord, where we can truly reconcile our lives to you but also we can encourage to do others, encourage others to do the same. Lord, I know that you hunger for us to know you. Lord, that you've made everything possible. You've given us all the tools we need in this life to draw near to you, to be right with you. I seek forgiveness in my own life. Lord, I know I'm convinced I'm, I miss it on a daily basis. But you have come that uh, you can even take those failures, Lord, and use them for your glory. So, Lord, I just pray for anyone here today, Lord, that just needs to draw near to you, Lord. Need to experience that, that being right with God, not being in fear of judgment recognizing that there is a pace that we need to, to hit in this Christian life. To not give up, not throw in the towel, not to check out, not disqualify ourselves, but to just run and run for you. So give us that strength that we don't have to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we? If you need prayer, prayer team will be over here to the right.